0: Welcome to Financial Planning Explained, and I'm your host, Mike Menninger, Certified Financial Planner, owner and founder of Menninger and Associates Financial Planning. Um, Love this to be an educational show. I'm not gonna have a guest in my next two episodes uh, because I'm backed by popular demand. Uh, People like the case studies because it gives them the opportunity to sort of relate to it. So prior case studies were Sort of based upon kind of a situation that may have occurred, and I adjusted some things. This one I actually dreamed up because I'm doing this intentionally because I created a very realistic case scenario, but I added all kinds of details because what it does is it enables me to touch upon a whole lot of really cool financial planning techniques that quite frankly, we use every day. And so um, let's get started, okay? So the six areas of financial planning, quite frankly, we're gonna touch upon most of them um, intentionally with this case study. So the six areas of financial planning are cash management, tax planning, uh, risk management, which is also insurance planning, investment planning, retirement planning, and estate planning. Just to give a better, more, cash management is today, Okay, Or by the book, it's how much do you make, how much do you, do you spend, and hopefully you make more than you spend. Okay, We look at it more from a balance sheet. and We look for ways with which we can improve cash flow, which is usually better and easier done by uh, managing debt. Next area is tax planning. Tax planning is not something you do on April 15th. On April 15th, all you're doing is you're turning in your scorecard, and that scorecard is called the 1040. Tax planning is something you do throughout your life. And so we've had many episodes that reference tax planning. Every case study touches upon tax planning. Ironically, I I, I give seminars on it. I've given seminars to CPAs. I've given seminars to symposiums, large audiences from a variety of different professions, including financial advisors, because Uh, Tax planning is something you do, like I said, throughout your life, but particularly when it comes to the retirement assets, what you need to be thinking about is what's my tax bracket today, what's my tax bracket anticipated to be later when I'm taking my money out, and any time along the way, and any other projections that might happen, because sometimes you have unique situations that occur during the course of your lifetime. We touch upon that in this particular case study. Next is insurance planning. Well, just making sure that you're adequately insured, okay? Homeowners, automobile, life insurance, disability insurance, medical insurance, long-term care insurance, um, liability insurance. just want to make sure that you're adequately insured. Last thing you need is for your house to burn down. It's not insured. Trust me, that's going to be a financial impact. Gets getting your house in order to move forward basis. Investment planning. Investment planning is taking a look at your investments, okay? Well, let's put it this way. If you want a high rate of return, let me tell you something, you're going to be way ahead over the long term. But what? It comes with risk. If you want any risk whatsoever, well, that's okay. You're not going to get very much return. I mean, look at what are bank accounts getting to these days? You know, a quarter percent if you're lucky? So in most cases, people are somewhere in the middle, but if you really take a look at investment planning, the single largest component is risk. Okay, I'm sorry, it's time. The single largest component of risk is time. So if you don't need the money for 30 years, then you can afford some of the dips that you have along the way. But if you think you're gonna need the money in six months a year or some short period of time, well, then you're foolish putting the money into investments because of the fact that you put 10 grand in, if you need the money in one year and it's only worth five, guess what? That wasn't smart. So then the next area is retirement planning. And retirement planning is really two phases. It's the accumulation of assets and then the distribution of assets. And the pinnacle is the point with which People are looking to retire, and that's typically when a lot of people come to meet with us and financial advisors because they want to know, can I do it? Can I afford it? Do I have enough money? Well, we obviously help them with that, but the accumulation phase is utilizing all the different cool things that you can use IRAs, SEP IRAs, 401Ks, 403Bs, pensions, and you know, Roth IRAs, all that fun. the distribution side, do not underestimate the importance of the science that goes behind it. Okay, it's not just deciding, all right, I need $5,000 a month, I'll take it out of my retirement accounts. Very important, it's a science behind it. It's not that simple. And the last piece is estate planning. Estate planning has two components. What happens to my kids if I and my spouse die? In other words, if they're, who's gonna take care of them? And then the second component is, what happens to my assets when I die? Do I want to be the one to control it, or do I want the state to make that decision? All right, that's my introduction. So let's talk about this particular case study, okay? So what we have here is I just took, we got a 56-year-old male who, unfortunately, his spouse just died, okay? He makes about $120,000 a year, and he's self-employed. Self-employment, as you know, is... You know, he's bringing on $120,000, but the added complexity that self-employment does is it imposes additional taxes, such as self-employment tax, which is effectively doubling the Social Security and Medicare tax, which is aggregate 7.65%. So self-employed individual like this gentleman here, $120,000, he has to pay both sides of Social Security, which is 15.3%. Okay, because he pays as the employer and as the employee. However, the self employed individual has the ability to do additional deductions, okay, whereas they can have a lot of expenses reimbursed. Whereas a person who is a regular salaried individual does not have that ability. And we'll also talk about a relatively new tax law that came out with Trump in 2018 is the qualified business income deduction, okay? Touch upon that in a little bit. That's why I threw a self-employed person in here because it's an added layer of complexity but a layer of opportunity as it pertains to this. He's got two kids, both 18, I'm sorry, 19 and 23. Both of them are intelligent, college-educated, or going to college, okay? And I throw that in there because I am... God, it's probably a bad thing to say because it's probably politically incorrect, but I'm going to just assume that these two are going to be uh, well off in their later lives, all right? So those are the base facts. So let's take a little bit more about what they have going on. So he has about a million dollars in regular stock investments. Then he has about a million and a half in pre-tax 401k, IRA type of investments, um, has no Roth 401k or Roth IRA, has a $500,000 life insurance proceeds from his wife, and his home is worth about $600,000, and he's got about a $200,000 mortgage. Now, you take a look at a million and a half pre-tax, on the surface, that sounds like a lot. Okay, and it is, I'm not disputing it. It's a nice, good amount of money. But it's aggregate between him and his wife. Okay, they're both well into their 50s. Unfortunately, she passed away. So, what happened is that when she passed away, he was able to take her 401k and IRA, roll it into his own, which basically adds up to a million and a half. Now, I say that's not hard to do. It's kind of not hard to do because If you were to contribute just $5,000 a year and earn about 8% on your investments over 30 years, you're gonna have over a million dollars, well over a million dollars. So $5,000 combined between two people over 30 years, that means they started in their 20s. This is not unheard of, which by the way is also an important point because what a lot of young folks today If, in fact, they're diligent, and we do have a lot of clients who are younger and are very diligent about making contributions, what they don't realize is when they're making contributions to a pre-tax account is that they're adding to a ticking time bomb because all of a sudden they accumulate a technical boatload of assets that are pre-tax in retirement, Well, then all of a sudden, they may find themselves driven into a significantly higher income tax bracket in retirement because they're going to have to start pulling those assets out of their IRAs and pre-tax assets and having to pay income tax. And then subsequently, those same distributions cause other assets to become taxable. So, as I indicated, here is this gentleman He's got a million and a half dollars of pre-tax 401k and IRA assets that are aggregated between him and his late wife. Also point out that he doesn't have a Roth IRA. Okay, why is that? Well, either A, he was not eligible to contribute to a Roth. Well, it's entirely possible too because if your income if your adjusted gross income for a married couple is over a little bit over 200 I think it's 209,000 if it's over 209,000 you're not elig- eligible to contribute to the Roth anyway okay it may also be that if his and or his late wife does not have a 401k that allowed for Roth then that's another reason why they may not have contributed to Roth And yet another reason is the 56-year-old, wait, wait, Generation X? Okay, it's a tail end of Generation X, actually the first year of Generation Y. How do I know? Because I'm right there. Um, All our lives growing up, it was beaten into us, ingrained in us. Contribute to your 401k, contribute to your 401k because of the fact that it's going to help you in retirement because you're in a higher tax bracket now than you will be in retirement. Well, as I've stated many, many times in prior episodes of this show, I've had uh, episodes on just tax planning. Uh, This is, again, my presentation that I did last week in a symposium uh, was on tax planning. The moral of the story is many people are going to find themselves in a higher income tax bracket. And therefore, this couple may have been thinking because it was ingrained in their heads, oh, my goodness, I need to contribute to pre-tax assets, okay? We're going to touch upon that again a little bit here. And so $200,000 left on his mortgage. Okay, fine. That That's not surprising. And no other debt. Well, that's also not surprising because if the two of them were making a decent income, they're over $200,000, uh, they probably have paid off their cars. They may very well have established uh, 529 programs or paid for their, kids' college through college, the first one, and then the second one who's 19 years old, they may be paying out of cash flow, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. So I just laid the groundwork of some of the things that we're going to talk about as it pertains to um, ideas that we can bring up. So stay tuned. We're going to take a short break here, and we'll pick up right where I left off at the end of the break. Be right with you. Have you saved enough for retirement? Are you financially prepared for an emergency or unexpected event? Have you thought about your financial future? Hi, I'm Mike Menninger, founder of Menninger & Associates Financial Planning. For over 20 years, we have been answering our clients' questions just like these as we develop unique and comprehensive financial plans tailored to meet their needs. When addressing your financial plan, we incorporate your entire financial picture, including taxes, estate planning, as well as investment planning and retirement planning. So call us today for a complimentary no-obligation consultation. A unique approach to financial planning. Welcome back to Financial Planning Explained. I'm your host, Mike Menninger, certified financial planner, owner and founder of Menninger & Associates Financial Planning. So we're gonna pick up where we left off with this um, case study. So, again, it's it's a 56-year-old widower. I hate that word widower. You got the widow. A widower seems to me like the person who makes a widow, but separate issue. I never was really good, strong grasp of the English language. But here we go again. So anyway, so he, his wife died. They got two children, 19, age 23. He's got a fairly substantive amount of assets, and he's self-employed. So we talked about um, the fact that where we left off, he doesn't have Roth IRAs and why they don't have Roth IRAs. You know, there could be a myriad of reasons, whether it was voluntarily they don't have a Roth IRA or Roth 401k or involuntarily they don't have one at the end of the day they don't have one um, so let's talk about it what's the difference between the traditional 401k and the traditional IRA versus the uh, the Roth IRA and the Roth 401k well very simply if an individual is making hundred thousand dollars a year and he contributes 10% or 10,000 to his 401k that's pre-tax that's considered deductible so he gets a, 10, uh, a W-2 at the end of the year that said he made 90 grand. If he were to contribute to the Roth, he contribute, or He makes 100 grand, he contributes 10 grand to his uh, Roth 401k. His W-2 says he made 100 grand. Well, what happens with the growth? Well, what happens with the $10,000 in both cases, it grows tax-deferred, tax-deferred, tax-deferred. But with the traditional, the pre-tax is when you take the money out, it comes out dollar for dollar as ordinary income on your tax return. Meanwhile, the Roth IRA and Roth 401k, when you take it out, it comes out, my two favorite words, tax-free. So effectively, the, the two are mirror images of each other. Traditional is the tax deduction today. You pay taxes later, where Roth is you don't get a tax deduction today, but you pay taxes on it later. It really comes down to the difference between the two, is if you're in a really high income tax bracket today and a low tax bracket later, then you wanna take a tax deduction today. But if you're in a lower tax bracket today and project you're gonna be in a higher income tax bracket in retirement, then you don't want the tax deduction today because you want it tax free in the back end. However, because of the uh, change in tax laws, They've made it so that we are in the lowest income tax bracket system that we have ever been in my life and probably my parents' lifetime and will ever be again in my kid's lifetime. So that's a pretty big span of time. In my opinion, in my professional opinion, we are in the lowest income tax bracket system we will ever see again. And they've got to go up for a variety of different reasons. Number one, the tax brackets are unsustainable. We can't keep up with we're already having to borrow We're spending more than we're bringing in. Okay, and where they get their money from is tax. There, this is just flat out not sustainable. Furthermore, the income tax system is so low that that we could sneak money in and pay 22 or 24 percent tax, and between potentially higher income tax brackets, having to pay more for Medicare because of your income, having to potentially pay more tax because of the taxation of Social Security, phantom taxation of Social Security. Social Security, the taxation of it is predicated on other income. If your IRA income is causing your other income to become, your Social Security to become taxable, then all of a sudden, your effectively marginal tax bracket goes through the roof, okay? And while speculative, is it possible that the uh, they, um means test Social Security. I mean, what I mean by that is, does Bill Gates really need Social Security? No. If, they're not, if they don't have enough money in the Social Security system, is it possible that the amount of Social Security you get is based on your income? That possibility exists. Very speculative. I'm not suggesting that I think they're going to do it. But, so, in this case, he's got a million dollars of stock assets, stock investments. Basically, what it, I mean by that is they're non-qualified investments, whether it's cash, or stocks, or mutual funds, or ETFs, or bonds. Basically, he could take out the the million dollars and he will only pay tax on any interest, dividends, or capital gains, okay? So it's after-tax money. He also has an extra $500,000 in cash that were life insurance proceeds, which then raises the next question from a cash management perspective, do you pay off the mortgage? Okay, well, that's a good question, okay? Does he continue working, okay? And so what do you do about the kids? Do you wanna pay for college or what do you wanna do? So there's a lot of different, you know, what are your goals? Well, in this particular instance, you know, he's saying, well, you know, I don't know if I wanna continue working, okay, you know, I've been busting my hump all these years, I'm 56 years old, well, there's a unique rule as it pertains to social security that applies to him okay? And that's the ability to have a surviving spouse benefit. Talk about that in a little bit. Does he want to pay for his kid's college? Well, you know what? He paid for a first kid's college. How do I go about paying for the second one? I would like to be able to do that, okay? And do I, you know, help my kids get a kickstart on life, okay? Not a bad idea. That may have been his late wife's goals, okay? If he has more than enough money to be able to live comfortably for the rest of his life, then it may provide the opportunity that he can start passing forward to his children because he can. And once again, this all comes down to the financial planning and, you know, these are details of the financial planning. But it starts with taking a look at his goals and objectives, you know, if he's able to identify what his cost of living is, could be, would be in retirement. And then what we do is we aggregate all of his assets and his income in retirement. If he's capable of doing it, well then maybe he has the opportunity to be able to do some of these things today. Everybody loves stories. When you've been around the business long enough, we all come across clients who have stories. I have one client, and, and we joked about it just the other day, ironically, is, you know, i got like three or four stories just from her or them, but I remember the one thing that she had said to me. She said, Mike, you know, uh, she inherited a fairly decent amount of money from her parents, and she inherited the money when she was well into her 70s, and, you know, not to say that she was mad at her parents, she's but... You know, where were they when I needed the money earlier in my life, when I was raising children and struggling, et cetera, et cetera? Well, in this particular instance, this gentleman may be able to help his children get a kickstart in life where it's not actually having an adverse impact on him, okay, or his retirement, et cetera, et cetera. That's one opportunity. Now, let's talk about paying for the younger child's education, all right? Kids going to college, topic of its own. Let's just assume for a moment that he wants to pay for college. And bright kid, going to a good school. But the cost of education is, let's say, $30,000 a year. I just picked the number out of thin air. So $30,000 a year, he's already completed his freshman year. He's got 30 grand a year for three years skipping inflation, which is not fair, but for the purpose of the episode, we'll say $30,000 a year. Well, I'm going to present it as if we're in Pennsylvania. Why? Because I'm in Pennsylvania. Every state has its own rules. Well, one of the things that he can do is he can contribute $15,000 to a 529, actually it's 16 now, 16 because it's, it's the child gifting limit. So, you can gift $16,000 without there being a gift tax, but the way Pennsylvania also works is that if you gift or contribute $16,000 to a 529 plan, you get a $16,000 Pennsylvania tax deduction. Okay, Pennsylvania's tax is 3.07%. 3.07% of $16,000 is to the tune of 481, 482 bucks. What the heck? If you know you're gonna be spending 16 grand for college, you may as well use the 529 as a pass-through. And so, if you do something like that, I call it a 3% discount on college. Say, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Client, how'd you like to get a 3% discount on college? Like, sure, we'll do the 529, okay? And so, the way the Pennsylvania program works, or you could use any other state, okay, as long as it has a program where you don't pay money going in, in other words, there's not a fee, there's not an investment risk, and, you could take it right back out. Okay, so we use the Virginia plan. Not that it matters. So we make a contribution to money market, and we turn around and take the money right back out. There's no cost for going in, no cost to take the money out. We're not putting it into an investment, so there's no fees whatsoever except the $10 annual fee, which I think is jump change compared to making 480 bucks in taxes. So that helps us get 15 of the or 16 of the 30,000. Now we got 14 grand left. Well, with any luck, they might be able to get a Stafford loan, okay? A Stafford loan is basically a school loan that is offered by the government. As I recall, it's $5,500 a year for your first two years, $6,500 for your third year, and $7,500 in your final year, okay? So, and if it's subsidized, that means basically there's no accumulation of interest until after you graduate, Okay? So if you can get those loans, it's basically free money. Because in theory, if you got a Stafford loan, let's say I was planning on paying for my student's education. Let's say in this particular instance, he's going to pay for his education. Well, why in the world would you pay $5,500 today if you could pay 5,500 in three years when he graduates because no interest is accumulated over the next three years? May as well make money on my money, right? Okay, That's another idea that one could use for paying for college. Now, let me tell you what I did too. And I use this example because this is what I did with my kids. Is Let's think about something for one moment. Why do you go to college? All right, some people will say, oh, so I can get an education. That's baloney. You go to college because you want to be able to put that certificate up on the wall because you want that to be on your resume. Why? So it enhances your chances of getting a higher paying white collar job okay believe me i'm not taking anything away from the trades because i think the trades can make a boatload of money the the plumbers the electricians the carpenters man i have all kinds of respect for those trades but anyway so if you're coming out of college you got that certificate on the wall that helps you get your first job and hopefully be a higher paying job because why do you want to be making more money so you could buy stuff Okay, well, think about it. If you're going to buy stuff, what's the biggest stuff you're ever going to buy is your house. If you're buying a house, what are the two things? If the, if the mortgage company is going to give you a loan, you're going to want to know two things. Number one, can you pay? Number two, will you pay? All right, well, can you pay is basically, do you have a job? Do you have income? Well, if you have income because you got your college degree, et cetera, et cetera, great. Now you can demonstrate you have income. Well, will you pay? Well, what's your history of stiffing people when you borrow money? Uh, gee, I wonder if there's a way you could actually measure that. Ever heard of credit scores? Credit scores are a measure of what's your history of making payments. I actually have a client who had to co-sign for his 28-year-old son's mortgage and not because his 28-year-old son had bad credit, his 28-year-old son had no credit. No credit is almost as bad as bad credit, okay? So what I did with both of my kids, and I'll use my son for example, what we did is we took out his Stafford loans, which made sense, and then a nominal amount I took out from Sally Mae, which was $3,000 a semester, and I did it for three semesters. Now, trust me when I tell you, it burned me up. actually did it for two. It burned me up to be paying seven and a half percent interest on that loan, okay? Because theoretically, it's two hundred bucks a year that I'm paying in interest. But in the case of the Sally Mae loan, both our names were on the loan. With both of our lame- names on the loan, what I did is I expedited payment. I took each of those three thousand dollar Sally Mae loans that were in both of our names. I expedited payment, paid them both off in about eighteen months which means that the amount of interest that I paid on each loan was about 200 bucks. I was paying the three grand anyway because that was the deal I had. Okay, I was paying a certain dollar amount. In this particular instance, if the client was looking to pay a certain dollar amount, well, heck, run some of it through a loan, make payments on the loan, and then what I did is that, combined with the fact that I encouraged him to get a credit card and he ended up getting two, he ended up graduating college with a 786 credit score, okay? That is considered excellent credit and only because of the fact that you planned it out. So, again, I'd use that as an example for the college piece. So there are ways with which you can fund the education in the remaining. Well, if he wants to pay it out of a cash flow, then you pay it out of cash flow. And now we've basically paid for college and the, the child graduates from college, he may choose to keep the Sally Mae Loan, or the, the Stafford loans, because by paying on those, even if I were to pay on or the parent were to pay on him, by paying on those, the interest rates are lower. And what'll happen is that'll also fortify and help him with his credit. So here again, I ain't even getting into all the cool stuff yet. So what we're gonna do is run out of time for this particular episode. What we're gonna do is we're gonna pick this up exactly where we left off on next week's episode. And so till then, signing off. You have a wonderful day and a wonderful week. And I will see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll pick this up when we come back. I'm your host, Mike Manager, certified financial planner, founder, and owner of Manager and Associates Financial Planning. And this is my show, Financial Planning Explained. Thank you for joining. And I will see you next week where we pick up.